Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The False Rhyme by Mary Shelley. This is a... Clearly not the story that most people know by Mary Shelley. That would be, obviously, Frankenstein, which is 1818. And this is, uh, what, 1830, Jesse? Yeah, 1829 is when it, late 1829 is when it came out. Right. So uh, this is uh, 12 years later. Of course, Mary Shelley was a teenager when she wrote Frankenstein, so she's not exactly ancient when she writes this thing. Um I, I take that into account because in one way, it's a story about a brother and a sister. Um, mm-hmm. You recommended it to me um, mostly, I think, because we were trying to find other goodies by famous writers. And, and this was short enough for us to uh, to want to do our reading short and deep uh, approach to it. Um, but when I read it, I, I found uh, this this interplay between Margaret, Queen of Navarre, and uh, and Francis, her brother, who is a king um, uh, in France, uh, I found them to be young adult king and brother and sister. These weren't, mm-hmm. you know, kids, and they weren't elder statesmen. Um, there was something playful here, and they were still very much interested in things like, uh, well, are 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 women really to be trusted? What about female perfidy? And so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, I thought, in a way, a sort of a delightful story, a, a, a parable, excuse me, a parable, um, mm-hmm. in fact. Did you like it? Oh, yeah. I, 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 it's, it's curious, because it's... Margaret's a real person, and so is her brother. Um, and... I don't know if this is. I was thinking, is this a true story? I, I don't think it's a true story, but I think it is a true parable, um, <laughs> if that makes sense. And uh, I, I quite like it. it. It there's something about really short stories that when they work and they they're you know cooking on all uh, four burners, they can really do something. And this one has that. And it is. Um, it it's. It's. I'm surprised it isn't more famous, given that it's quite, it's quite good at doing what it does. I agree. I like your phrase, uh, a true parable. Uh, so the story begins, um, so we can sort of make sure that we're thinking of the same story. The story begins with a, uh, an epigraph. So the story is called The False Rhyme. And the epigraph is uh, from a poem uh, called The Wonder. Uh, it turns out by uh, a poet named Thomas More, not not the famous saint, but a, a late 18th, early 19th century poet. And this is the first stanza. Come, tell me where the maid is found, whose heart can love without deceit, and I will range the world around to sigh one moment at her feet. So it looks like Thomas More um, is suggesting that you can't find any woman anywhere who is not deceitful. Women just lie. Women mm-hmm. just lie. And that already, I think, sets us up for uh, the notion of a true parable. Because parables aren't histories. They are made-up stories. But then there's the question about whether or not they're true. So the question, I think, that's already foreshadowed here is whether or not, in fact, 
there is such a thing as a woman without deceit. And we don't know what that, that means yet. Um, but the story, I'll remind us, Margaret happens to be visiting her brother. And as she walks into his room, she sees that he has been uh, etching something on the window pane with a diamond. And as soon as she walks in, he lets the curtain drop so she can't see what he's uh, doing. And that immediately makes her more interested in knowing what's going on, we're told. So perversity has its own pleasures. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that he himself has been writing a poem about uh, women's perfidy. Uh, it's in French, uh, but I'll, I'll say it in, in an English translation. Um, well, souvent femme varie. Um, women often uh, are variable, uh, even um, very, very foolish is he who uh, confides in them, that is, who trusts in them. And then Margaret says, you know, maybe we should change it just a little bit. Souvent homme varie, bien folle qui s'y fie. Men often vary, uh, even uh, really foolish is she who trusts in them, in him. Um, so the question is, which one is constant, which one is inconstant? And uh, they make a bet. And the mm-hmm. bet is, uh, can you find, uh, first he wants to say, well, can you find even, uh, uh, can you find some bad man? Can you find bad one? They settle on having to find one faithful woman. And uh, Margaret is saying, well, women are, are faithful. You know, all those instances of falsehood um, are never true for noble and well-reputed women. And the king says, what about Emilie de Lagny, who mm-hmm. was, in fact, Margaret's favorite uh, courtier, her lady-in-waiting and so on. And then we get the story, which is the one that you're asking, was this really made up? And as far as I can tell, in fact... It was entirely made up, although Margaret of Navarre and Francis I, uh, Francis R. are, in fact, historical. Mm-hmm. And then the story is that, uh, well, how about if you tell the story? Because it's, it's interesting how one views the story. What's, what's so, the view? So Amelie de Longy is um, a beautiful, wonderful, well-raised, uh, high-born woman who falls in love with a man, they get married, and he uh, is a, a soldier in uh, Francis's army. He, um, in a battle, yields a fortress to uh, the emperor. I'm not sure which emperor this is, maybe. I think it Char- must mean the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah, Charlemagne. Or, that that yeah. would be the, historically, would be the place where the king of France would be... Uh, politically antagonistic, even though the King of France is himself Catholic. Right. Um, so because of this yielding of a fortress to the imperialists, the uh, the king imprisons um, de Langy, the, the, the sire de Langy. And this causes uh, the woman, Emily, to run off with a page after a short period of time she runs off with a very attractive handsome cute young page boy um taking all their gold and jewels with them um this is obviously a a massive uh shock to um to marguerite who or margaret who is uh 
thinking that her friend and courtier was honorable, upright, and she thinks that there must be some mistake, and I will prove that there has been some mistake. She s- sends out a hundred courtiers or um, messengers off to find out the facts and offers a reward, and and then uh, the month almost passed, she does receive a message. Yeah, um, I would just make a small note. Um, the Sieur de Lagny, um, we don't actually, we're never told that he did yield a fortress to the emperor. What we're told is that he was accused of it. Right. And for that was thrown into jail. So right. he, he's been in the dungeon, you know, for a long time. And uh, when Fr- Margaret and Francis make their bet, um, Francis says that what, what Margaret says is if you if if it turns out that that I lose the bet, I will take your poem that women are so variable that you are very foolish. Anyone who trusts in them, I will make that my motto, which is a big deal right. if you're an aristocrat, yeah. and I will bear it to my grave. And he says, if I lose, I will break the window on which I have written this two line poem. And I will give you any boon you want. Mm-hmm. So when the that's, mother, that's where the parable right begins, right? Exactly. So, so this we, is classic fairy tale style parable. Absolutely. So when you get to the month being almost over, someone comes to Margaret and says, the jailer comes to, to Margaret and says, here's the deal. If you will um, get the king to bring my prisoner up, he will, um, he will, uh, you will win the bet. But if you win the bet, then you have to, uh, the the boon that I want you to ask for is the freedom of my prisoner. And uh, then we see what transpires, um, which is pretty cool. Right. What transpires is that she agrees. She has faith in in the jailer. And so she says, "Okay, bring the guy. The guy comes up. Turns out there is a messenger sent uh, messenger sent Um, the the imperial forces have taken back the fortress Mm -hmm. and the, the messenger who delivers the message um, that the fortress has been taken includes in the message that he is supposed to deliver praise for the messenger himself who remains um, incognito because he's taken a vow that prevents him from raising his visor and the right. king the king again true fairy tale uh, fashion accepts that vow as being adequate and so the guy tells the story the prisoner comes up and who should the prisoner be? It turns out that the prisoner is Emilie. She, in fact, had never got run away with uh, uh, Robinet Ledoux, uh, the handsome boy, the handsome, the handsome guy. His name has some meanings, but yes, uh, with the handsome guy, she had, in fact gone into prison to take the place of her husband. 
her husband had run away with Robinet LaRue and with their money and so on. Dressed as a woman. <laughs> Dressed as a woman. And then he had joined the army and he had led the attack that, re that captured this fortress. So he was a tremendous hero. He was able to redeem himself. And so then when the messenger takes off, um, you know, with the advisor, it turns out that the messenger is, in fact, him. And who is the prisoner who has to be freed? The prisoner is Amélie. So they have, because she has had such faith in her husband, and he has had such faith and loyalty and so on, everybody is redeemed. It's all wonderful. And at the end, um, the last paragraph, kind of interesting. Because, um, mm -hmm. you know, everybody gets pardoned, everybody is restored, it's all perfectly fairy taleish. But then it says, the last paragraph, in the tournament given to celebrate this triumph of ladies, the Sire de Lagny bore off every prize. And surely <laughs> there was more loveliness in Emily's faded cheek, more grace in her emaciated form, type as they were, of truest affection than in the prouder bearing and fresher complexion of the most brilliant beauty in attendance on the courtly festival. And the reason I point to that is that this seems so much like a fairy tale, but this is not a standard fairy tale ending. You know, in a standard fairy tale, beauty either equates to moral goodness or at least narrative goodness, like because you're beautiful, you deserve to win, even if you're bitchy. Um, and it's usually female beauty we're talking about in a standard gendered kind of fairy tale world like the Grimm brothers. Um, because you're beautiful, you deserve to uh, succeed. Um, or if you're beautiful and you don't deserve to succeed, then that beauty is itself highly ironic, like the beautiful stepmother who is the witch in, uh, in Snow White. Uh, but in an adult fairy tale, that beauty becomes, um, it's still uh, centrality, but you're in a world that no longer supports us. So in something like Keats's La Belle Dame Sans Merci, uh, the, as we've discussed before in that poem, the, the knight at arms who had had a moment in fairyland is forever after pale and solely loitering on the cold hillside because he can never get back to that sense of beauty. So beauty typically marks a kind of narrative centrality. It's the most important thing, straight up for children or ironically for children, or kind of uh, as a terrible taste of the ideal we can never reach for adults in those fairy tale structures. What we have here is an explicit ending on the note that it is Emily's shrunken beauty, her wan cheeks, her emaciated frame that stand for the loyalty with which she has been silently taking her husband's place in prison. That's the true beauty. And it is much better than the prouder bearing and fresher complexion of the most brilliant beauty in attendance on the courtly festival. What Shelley is doing here is saying superficial looks do not tell us what's really important. 
What's really important is character. And I was stunned when I realized how this deviated from the standard uses of beauty in fairy tales because that's exactly Shelley's point in Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. The monster I, I, I see that too. is yeah. innocent until society judges him as bad because of his ugliness. And it's only to recapture the possibility of getting his creator to make a mate for him so that he can leave and have a society of his own that he begins to do harsh and violent things to humanity, right? Inside, he was good, and humanity didn't see it. This is the same theme in four pages. Mm -hmm. The the other thing to... uh, I I go back to the the opening with the with the brother standing at the window carving into the glass um, and outside is it's raining, right? Yes. The glass to me is reflecting him and his emotion. The, we were told in the very first line of the story that the, the previous day had been a fine July day, right? Sunny, presumably. And now... Looking out the glass, what has made him so melancholy is he's thinking about how he's been betrayed. But we don't know exactly how he's been betrayed. But the woman, it is rumored, he uh, he thinks is, has somehow betrayed him was one of his favorites. Which to me <laughs> is showing sort of, you know, a dis... <laughs> a... a Men are allowed to love more than one woman, is what it says to me. And at the end, I think we've got a little hint of that, too, in the very last part, right? Yeah. Um, Right at the beginning, it says, uh, at the beginning of the last paragraph, in the tournament given to celebrate this triumph of the ladies, the sire de Longhi bore off every prize. (laughs) You know, in a traditional tournament, the prizes are, you know, laurels or, you know, uh, the, uh, get delivered by the hand of a beautiful woman, right? But there's not just one prize. There's many prizes. All the women are looking at this handsome man in the tournament in celebration, and he's bearing off all of the prizes. But then the author makes the point, and I think not completely unironically, that the most beautiful woman there is his faithful wife. So I think Shelley is having it both ways. She's saying that women can be faithful um, and that uh, men um, <laughs> uh, on the surface may look faithful, but I think it's it's showing the disparity between a woman's faith and a man's faith. I think you're right. I don't think that's both ways. I think it's, it's two parts of the same way. I think ultimately... Um, Frankenstein, to the extent that it deals with the question of um, essence versus appearance, um, is general. And it's a critique of the human um, error of judging by appearances. I think in this story, we have a feminist critique of what that means. Mm -hmm. That women see more deeply than men. And that women understand essences better than men, and that women, in fact, are morally better than men. 
it's interesting to me how many things in this story have to do with being able to see clearly or not. You know, there's that line from Corinthians about, now I am seen as through a glass darkly, but then um, I will be seen clearly. Um, I like what you say about the window on a rainy day being something you can see through, but it's dark out there, and so it's also uh, perhaps a mirror. Maybe you're not seen clearly. He's using a diamond, Francis is, to, mm-hmm. to write this poem. Diamond is transparent. Glass is transparent. One transparency, in fact, marks another transparency, and it turns out that both Jules and the, the poem written on the window are mistaken, that mere transparency doesn't give us access to see what's true. When, when the messenger comes back and he's got the visor and he's got a vow that he can't raise the visor, um, and the king accepts that, um, <laughs> it turns out that what, what the, the messenger says is in fact completely true, that we can trust him even though we can't see his face. And the, the word visor comes from the French vis, as in vis-a-vis, uh, face-to-face. Um, his face is hidden but that doesn't mean he's not true. Just as Emily Delagny is masquerading mm. for her husband, that doesn't mean that she is not true to her husband and a loyal subject of the king. So it turns out that deceit becomes a crucial tool for giving truth. As you said earlier, mm. this is a true parable. Deceit is the tool for giving the truth. And if you think of the situation of women in 1830, when this thing is published, 1829. Um, How is it that a a person who is not legally allowed, perhaps, to own property, who doesn't have the right to her own children, uh, etc., how is it that such a person is able to be true to herself and even true to others? This is not a narcissistic feminism that we have here at all. How can such a person do that? And the answer is, as Jesus told the truth by making up fanciful tales, mm-hmm. woman can tell the truth by living out what could in other ways be looked at as deceit. That the glass, the diamond, whether it's homely or wealthy, the appearance of transparency does not mean that we're looking at what's really there. Women, however, are able to see more than men, certainly Margaret more than Francis, what true value is. This is, I think, also not just in line with Frankenstein. It's also a very subtle and powerful feminist argument from the early 19th century. I I completely agree. And I, I think it's just it's so well envisioned in this story. And it, it, the window acts as as a filter in a certain sense when he's carving on the window that rhyme of how women are inconstant you can't trust them he is kind of putting a projection out on his view of the world that is yeah no matter what no matter what woman i see no matter who comes to me uh in front of this window i always have to remember you can't trust those women at the end of the story he smashes the the glass as part of his promise and in his proving that there is at least one woman out there who is who is uh honorable and uh loyal um 
but I th- I think it's 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 just such a cool vision of having that him seeing the world in that way and then having to carve it into the glass to remind him. And yet his loyal sister who has come there to uh, be amused with her um, highly educated brother. These apparently uh, this brother and sister were very highly educated and they had uh, salons and there's even one story um, uh, actually written by Marguerite, Margaret, um, that is kind of parallel to the experience that uh, Shelley herself had at that um, uh, the summer retreat in the summer without without a summer uh, right. in the Alps of um, Chamonix. That Chamonix, Chamonix in, in 1817. In Switzerland, right. So at that meeting, they had to amuse each other by telling ghost stories. Apparently there is a story written by Marguerite uh, herself that is very similar to that, um, where a group of friends amuse each other um, by playing games and making up stories. Yeah, that's and, the Tamaron, I think. It's uh, Right, exactly. Yeah, she, and she, so, she's, a, she's a, an important Renaissance intellectual. Absolutely. Oh. And when we've got this woman coming to her her brother's home to have one of those old meetings like they used to have, he is sulking in his room. She has to come to him after he refuses to come to the, the birthday uh, or, uh, sorry, the breakfast celebration that she had planned. She's mad at him. He's sulking in his room. He's writing on the glass, creating a view of reality for himself, a reminder and when she comes in, he pulls down the curtain, prevents her from seeing it. When she sees this, she gets grumpy and pulls the curtain aside, sees it. It That view of women as being disloyal doesn't apply to his sister. And she comes up from behind him, right? Because she's not a sexual object in the way that all other women are for him. And... He, she manages to disarm him. And I think that there's something really charming about this uh, sibling relationship in that they're both adults and they're both uh, in marriages or, well, one of them's in a marriage anyway, so I'm not sure about uh, the brother yet. Um, But we've got this sense that they are teaching each other, well, she's teaching him something about how the world is. And at the end of the story, he's forced to smash that glass because she's pr- proved him right. I agree. I, I, I think that they're, they are delightful. They are, I, I'd love to, to meet these siblings. They're, they're, Absolutely. They're, they're really neat people. And I think um, it's worth our remembering that um, the, the reality of what Emily has accomplished demonstrates the point that Margaret makes to Francis. And in that sense, by having won the bet, indeed, as you say, Francis is forced to break the glass. But I think it's also worth remembering that when they make the bet, it is Francis who offers that up, the breaking of the glass and the, uh, the granting of any boon you like. It's Francis who makes that up as an appropriate forfeit should he lose the bet. So, yes, uh, Margaret has put him in a position where 
she has forced him to do this, but he is smart enough to realize the importance of having maundered, uh, despaired over women's uh, deceit. And in a way, he wants her to be able to show that, that he was mistaken. And he knows that if you break the words, if you break the words, in a sense, perhaps you can get rid of their meaning. I think that's one of the things that makes the title of this story, The False Rhyme, so good. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have to wonder what the words really mean. With a slight variation, as Margaret shows, they could seem to mean the opposite of what they mean at first. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, as I looked at it, the the title has at least four meanings, The False Rhyme. Um, for one thing, it could be um, that all women are false, right? It's it's the rhyme about the falseness of all women. Um, it's, you know, that's the, the one that Francis writes. Um, it could also be um, that all women really are false. That's that's what it's saying, That uh, which then gets uh, disproved by the story. Um, it could be that the fact is that neither rhyme is borne out as true, right? Because it may well be that even though Emily is true, um, there could be lots and lots of other women who are deceitful, not to do good things, but to do deceitful and bad things. So it could be that neither of the rhymes is themselves true. And then there is a technical meaning for what a false rhyme is. You know, um, this is the one I thought it was. Well, okay. Um, so there. So we know what rhyme is. Moon, June, right? You know, the same sound repeated. And in most ways, people think of it, it's at the end of a, of a line of verse. And then we have something called near rhyme. So you have, like, if you rhyme fetch with witch, mm-hmm. you know, um, that, that's a near rhyme. But there's also something called false rhyme which is rhyming on a word, on a syllable that isn't accented. So like if you were to rhyme doing with singing, Mm. it's true that the last syllable of the two lines rhyme, the ing and the ing, but it's not really a rhyme because the emphasis is on the do and the sing, not the ing and the ing. Uh, That's called a false rhyme. So a false rhyme actually rhymes, but... (laughs) It's not the rhyme that you're supposed to be noticing. My favorite example of this is uh, in William Blake's poem, The Tiger. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? <laughs> it should be <laughs> symmetry. Right. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's, that's, I think, a slightly different, well, I guess that's a false rhyme. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. Well, because it's not rhyming with something else that's also not not uh, uh, stressed. But you're right. I mean, you don't have to have both of them not be stressed to have it, should, it work. It should work. Yeah, and, it, yeah does. it doesn't. Exactly. And, and, and in fact, in some, it's, about this poem or in this some sense, it does work. Right. I mean, in this, yeah, in this story, it does work. So the false rhyme, this is what I love. The false rhyme, you can't tell what it means. It's got at least four different meanings. From the technical to the the indicative, you know, it's it's an indexing of this poem or that. I mean, of this poem within it or whatever. Um, it's got at least four different meanings, 
And you don't know which one it is, but it turns out that they're all true. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the false rhyme that gives us the truth, just the way it is the broken window that lets us really see out, the way it is it's the closed visor that lets lets real nobility walk into court. It is the deceitful woman who is able to save her husband and the empire. I mean, the false rhyme turns out to be the true rhyme, and that's why I so loved it when, as we began, you said, ah, yes, it's a true parable. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> all of its falseness is to make an argument about how truth can reside, can, not must, but can reside in deceit, that the superficial, in fact, is not what we should be looking at, but what is beneath it. But there's always more to say. <laughs>